Oh, my God. 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program.
שלום, עטרת בעלה, גם ברינה, ובצעו לה. כמה שנים ברחוב הירקון בתל אביב ראיתי יהודי זקן מנקה את הרחוב. פניו היו יפות, אך גופו שבור לגמרי, השכינה הייתה נסוכה לו על הפנים. ניגשתי אליו ואמרתי לו, שלום עליכם, ענה לי במבטא פולני, עליכם שלום. שאלתי אותו ביידיש, מיין זיסי יד, יהודי יקר. התאמר לי, מאיפה אתה? מפי הסצ'נה הוא ענה, הייתה זו פצצה בתוך ליבי, פעם ראשונה שאני פוגש ניצול משם. האם פעם אחת ראית את רבי קלונימוס קלמן? שאלתי, השיב ודאי, אצלו למדתי כל ילדותי. בגיל 11 הגעתי לאושוויץ, חשבו שאני בן 17. שלחו אותי למחנה עבודה. איני אף אחד, אני לבד בעולם. המשיך לטאטא את הרחוב. מתוך האש הכל עוד מדבר. 
הדבר הכי גדול, הכי גדול בעולם, הוא לעשות טובה למישהו אחר. אמרתי לו ידידי, אני חסיד של רבי קלמן, אולי תואיל לומר לי משהו בשמו. הוא הביט בי ואמר, אחרי המחנות, אתה באמת חושב שאנחנו עוד זוכרים? ואיך אוכל לתאר לך את קבלת השבת? רקדנו סביב הרבי כל הילדים. אך דבר אחד אני זוכר, שאמר לנו שוב ושוב, ולא אשכח כל החיים. מתוך האש לוחש לי ואומר, הדבר הכי גדול, הכי גדול בעולם, הוא לעשות טובה למישהו אחר. הדבר הכי גדול בעולם, הוא לעשות טובה למישהו אחר. כשהבנתי שכל המשפחה שלי הלכה, קמתי בלילה ורציתי לשים לחיי סוף. אז שמעתי את קולו של הרבי בתוך אוזניי, קינדר לך זכרו לעשות טובה למישהו אחר. אתה יודע כמה טובות אפשר לעשות בלילה באושוויץ, סביבך על הרצפה, אנשים שבורים. כל הלילה ישבתי, הקשבתי, עודדתי וניחמתי. נשארתי בחיים. מתוך האש לוחש לי ואומר, הדבר הכי גדול, הכי גדול בעולם, הוא לעשות טובה למישהו אחר. הדבר הכי גדול בעולם, לעשות טובה למישהו אחר. גם היום לפעמים איני מוצא טעם לחיי, נכנס לים, אך שוב קולו בתוך אוזניי. הדבר הכי גדול, אתה יודע כמה טוב אפשר לעשות ברחובות של תל אביב. בתוך האש הכל עוד מדבר, הדבר הכי גדול, הכי גדול בעולם, הוא לעשות טובה למישהו אחר. הדבר הכי גדול בעולם, הוא לעשות טובה למישהו אחר. Thank <laughs> you. 
J.M. in the A.M., the great Sherwood Goffin. I don't know how many out there uh, in this audience knew Sherwood. I don't know how many of you knew Chaz. I don't know how many of you knew Cantor Sherwood Goffin. I don't know how many of you knew one of my most beloved teachers from so many years ago. I don't know how many of you knew the person who was uh, in so many ways such an important piece of the success of Lincoln Square Synagogue and really the entire um, Kiruv movement associated with it for so many decades. I don't know how many of you knew Cantor Sherwood Goffin. Uh, You'd have to take my word for it if you didn't know him, that he was uh, an amazing man, a great chazan, and a wonderful friend. And um, we learned of his passing yesterday, and many of us, of course, had known that in uh, recent weeks things had gotten very bad, so it's not like the news was shocking, but it was was a difficult adjustment to believe that he is no longer with us. You just heard a couple of his selections that um, (laughs) put such a smile on my face as I thought back to some of his uh, amazing, not just performances, but his amazing musical leadership that he had in so many different venues. Um, for me personally, he's somebody I know for over 40 years. And of course, our condolences to the entire Goffin family. Uh, he's somebody I know over 40 years. I know him since I'm a very young kid. He is responsible for so many of us, meaning kids who got to know him at that age, being familiar with Nusach HaTfila, knowing how to daven, knowing how to ask how to daven certain things. And um, one of the things that made him so great, I, I thought of this yesterday, that in the context of his of his being a teacher, being a Rebbe in the area of Nusach HaTfila, of how to lead prayer, one of the things that um, set him apart was it was unacceptable to him, as friendly and nice and wonderful and as incredible a person as he was, 
it was unacceptable to him that someone would not take the role of Shliach Tzibor seriously. Don't get up there and 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 not and don't take it seriously. Get up there and understand the role that you have as a representative of the people. Um, as I said, from 1965, since the founding of Lincoln Square Synagogue until 2016, he was officially the chazan, the founding chazan, as he was called over the last few years. And um, aside from being one of the foremost artists when it came to music in the entire world, and also, by the way, the first, someone reminded me about this yesterday, he was the first to introduce the Nigunim of the Boston Rebbe to, um, to really the Jewish world, uh, collectively, the Jewish world wo- worldwide. Um, in his teenage years, he spent almost every Shabbat with the Boston Rebbe. And some of the classic Nigunim that we take for granted now and that we are so familiar with, uh, he taught us from the Boston Rebbe, meaning Sherwood Goffin taught us. It also says here in his bio, he was the acknowledged voice of Soviet jury, singing rally songs, that we just played before and many others before tens of thousands of attendees at every Soviet jury solidarity rally from the early 60s to the 90s in front of the United Nations. You know, it's not just that. It's not just the major rallies he was at. He was always with us in front of the Soviet mission in Manhattan, in front of the Soviet mission up in Riverdale, at every rally, at every demonstration, at every gathering, large and small. And I thought about this. I said to myself, you know, there's really only two people. There are really only two people that we associate as musical leaders of the Soviet jury movement. There are only two people we ever imagined being in front of the crowd while we were singing together and expressing our love for our brethren in the Soviet Union. And of course, I refer to Shlomo Kalbach and Sherwood Goffin. And, um, and those nights, some of them very cold nights on the streets of Manhattan, were warmed up by Sherwood's incredible musical leadership. How he rallied the crowd, how he spurred everybody on to sing at their at their loudest and most meaningful. Yeah, I remember all of those times. I remember those incredible, those incredible nights. And when he came to Nusach HaTfila, we know the impact he had on the Bell School of Jewish Music and at Yeshiva University and so many students who just loved learning from him, who loved, who, who loved how seriously he took Nusach HaTfila, who loved the incredible impact that he had uh, in convincing young people to do things properly from the Amud. And um, a lot of that will live on through his recordings, through so many Talmudim, through, through so many students who paid careful attention to his leadership, paid careful attention to his instruction. And uh, all that will, of course, live on. So our condolences to the Goffin family. Uh, Cantor Sherwood Goffin, the funeral takes place at Lincoln Square Synagogue, fittingly enough, at 10.30 this morning. Our condolences to the entire family, of course, and um, may his memory be a blessing for all of Israel, and I'm sure in this case his memory will be an amazing blessing for so many 
in the Jewish world internationally. That is for sure. JM and the AM on this Thursday, um, before the um, pieces by Chazen Gaffin, Kahov Lavan, and Mimkomo, you heard Aaron Razel, the Hebrew version that he created of Holy Hunchback. Bowie Kala, that was Amram Madar, Yehuda Green with Rachel Menu. Muzika, that was Yaakov Shwekin, of course, Regesh Modani opening things up. And we say good morning. It's Thursday on this April the 4th, the 28th of Adar 2. Yesterday was an unusual day um, because we were hit with so many different news items that were that were stunning in, in different ways. Uh, one of them, of course, was the um, was the news that Zachary Baumel's remains were back in Israel. Sometimes it's hard to convey to the younger people out there what some of these names mean to people from our generation. But uh, for us, for those of us who've been davening every Shabbos, for those of us who have um, been at the side of many people who have been fighting for the uh, release of Zachary Baumel during the time that we thought he was still alive, for those who remember the pain of his father, Yona Baumel, who we had in our studio to discuss Zach's situation. Uh, it was um, it, yesterday's news was was jarring. Was was just it really sent sent shivers uh, up uh, one's spine when all of this started to come to an end after all the funeral is taking place at 7 o'clock Israel time tonight at Har Herzl, once the Prime Minister returns with more of his remains from Russia. And um, and the nation of Israel will have, will have laid Zachary Baumel to rest after all these years. What does it say about the Jewish people? What does it say about Israel? What does it say about the respect that we all have for the Israeli army and for those who protect us and for those who take their role as designated by God to protect and preserve the land of Israel? How do we, um, how do we respond when one or more is in a situation like this? And the answer is what you've seen over the last 37 years and what we've experienced. And that's not to be taken lightly. That is not to be taken lightly. Uh, we'll speak with uh, Dr. Stuart Ditchick uh, hopefully about a half hour from now. He, of course, uh, for us, was the most vocal person on this side of the world um, for uh, Zach's release and stood by the Balmols on a million different occasions, including in some very dangerous circumstances. We'll check in with him coming up in the 7 o'clock hour. Uh, 8 o'clock hour this morning, as we've been promoting, I have a, um, I've had this insatiable desire to have a full-length conversation with the coach of the Yeshiva University men's basketball team, Elliot Steinmetz. He has granted that, and he'll be with us in the 8 o'clock hour this morning here at JM and the AM. So uh, a very, very uh, fluid and uh, interesting program coming up here on this Thursday broadcast from our Nahum Siegel Network headquarters in New York. 46 degrees, mostly sunny, and a high of 58 Mostly cloudy tonight, low 39, and tomorrow some showers, a high Friday, 43 degrees. Yerushalayim at 65, we're at 46 now in New York City.
as we say good morning at the JM and the AM. And you know what? We'll start the next half hour with another Chazen Sherwood Goffin selection. Why not? Um, his, uh, his impact on all of us, incalculable. Just an amazing man, a great friend, wonderful Chazen. And boy, will he be missed. Thursday morning broadcast at 18 minutes before 7 o'clock.
J.M. in the A.M., that's uh, Eitan Freilach, Avidan's song, done in memory of Avidan. Uh, Eitan Freilach here at J.M. the A.M. Yido with Malayim. You heard Sherwood Goffin, the great cantor Sherwood Goffin, who we lost yesterday. He left us. Funeral takes place this morning at Lincoln Square Synagogue. Sherwood's Hatov. We told you about the Hatov, right, from the Boston Arebbe and uh, Huelo Kenu. Uh, we had those two from him here at J.M. in the A.M. And he is missed, and uh, if you missed what I said earlier, I would recommend, if you want to hear some uh, some important thoughts about the life of Cantor Sherwood Goffin, check out the early part of this morning's JM in the AM. 46 degrees, mostly sunny, a high temperature of 58. We had, a, we had great news yesterday, by the way, in the uh, NSN studios. Really, really great news. Many of you, I'm sure, uh, remember Jamie Turkel, who was such an important part of our team. Here at NSN for uh, for many years, including 
uh, during the very, very historic, well, nothing can be very historic, right? During the historic uh, time of the um, journeys to both uh, Paris and Venice, you may recall that um, she was a very important part of our team. Anyway, yesterday, Jamie and Yoey Turkel became parents of a brand new baby boy. Mazal Tov to the Turkels, to the Roars, uh, to the entire family and extended family from all of us here at JM and the AM. So Jamie and Yoey Turkel, they have a brand new baby boy. Again, Mazal Tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. A reminder, Torah in Motion Travel has these journeys through Jewish history. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Natan Slifkin will lead an African safari starting on July the 1st. Uh, Dr. Mark Shapiro, July 26th, Central Europe, including Budapest, Vienna, Prague, Bratislava, and more. Bratislava and more. Uh, Greece with Dr. Mark Shapiro in August. India with Dr. Nathan Katz and Ellen Goldberg next February. A lot of journeys through Jewish history. Torah in Motion Travel. Uh, is the group that offers it. For information, TorahInMotion.org. TorahInMotion.org. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. They really have a lot of uh, wonderful programs that you'll discover uh, once you get to that website. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web, NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Galates on the background to our news from Israel coming up. Plenty happening Cholomoid Pesach, as you know. A lot of events. Uh, NCSY heading down to Six Flags with Mordechai Shapiro on Monday Cholomoid. Go to NCSY. GreatAdventure.com, NCSYGreatAdventure.com. Keep that in mind. Also, don't forget our friends at Aaron's Casino Farms in Queens now have the Aaron's Passover Mega Center with every brand of every product you can imagine. Check it out right next to Aaron's Casino Farms in Queens, New York. Galaitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Thursday's next. We say Boker Tov from Jam the ירושלים השעה שתיים, שלום רב, כאן רן יבנאי עם מה שקורה עכשיו. הרוסים העבירו לידי ישראל את הסרבל והנעליים של זכריה באומל, זיכרונו לברכה, כתבתנו טל זרביב. בטקס עם משמר כבוד של משרד ההגנה הרוסי, בהשתתפות הרמטכ"ל הרוסי, הוצב ארון ובתוכו שרידי החפצים של נעדר קרב סולטן יעקוב, זכריה באומל, זיכרונו לברכה, סרבל ונעליים שהיו שייכים לו. בטקס על הארון הונח דגל ישראל שנמסר על ידי הרמטכ"ל הרוסי לראש הממשלה בנימין נתניהו. נתניהו גם מניח זרי פרחים על הארון. הלווייתו של רב סמל זכריה באומל תיארך הערב בשעה שבע בבית העלמין בהר הרצל בירושלים. חמישה ימים לבחירות, יושב ראש מפלגת העבודה אבי גבאי לוחץ על ראשי כחול לבן לבטל את הרוטציה ביניהם. הנה הדברים שאמר לאפי בן אברהם ולגל גבאי. כשיש רוטציה, זה מפריע למצביעים שרוצים להצביע לכחול לבן, אז תזיזו את הרוטציה. מה זה התשובה הזאת שהם אומרים, אנחנו לא מוותרים על הרוטציה? אתה אמור לעשות כל דבר שיאפשר לנצח. זה גם הוריד לנו מנדט, שתבין, ואנחנו מוכנים לוותר. הדבר הזה שנקרא רוטציה לפני בחירות, הוא הזוי. והבוקר אמרו לפיד וגנץ בראיונות בגלי צה"ל כי אין בכוונתם לבטל את הרוטציה שעליה סיכמו. 
מפלגת ש"ס תעתור לבג"ץ בעקבות החלטת ועדת הבחירות לפסול את פרסומיה תחת השם יוסף עליכם, כתבנו יאיר אורבייטו. יושב ראש ועדת הבחירות השופט חנן מלצר החליט לפסול את מבצע יוסף עליכם כחלק מתעמולת מפלגת ש"ס שהבטיחה כתיבת אותיות בספר תורה למצביעי המפלגה. בעקבות הפסילה החליטו בש"ס לעתור לבג"ץ בניסיון להוכיח כי לא מדובר בשוחד בחירות. עובדי משרד החוץ הודיעו כי יקפיאו את הטיפול בקלפיות שהוצבו בנציגויות ישראל בחו"ל. הודעה מטעמם נכתב כי המהלך ייעשה בתגובה לצעדים החד צדדיים שנקט האוצר נגדם. העובדים קראו לראש הממשלה, לשר האוצר ולמלא מקום שר החוץ להתערב ולממש את ההתחייבויות כלפי העובדים. הנהלת משרד החוץ פנתה לפרקליטות לצורך הגשת צו מניעה לוועד העובדים. אם מתל אביב מואשמת כי הפיצה תמונות מיניות של בתה הקטינה, כתבתנו ליה ספילקין. על פי כתב האישום, האם בשנות ה-40 לחייה קיבלה הנחיות מהנאשם הנוסף, עבריין מין מורשע, כיצד לצלם את בתה בת השמונה ושלחה לו עשרות תמונות וסרטונים. בשלב מסוים הוא אף הגיע לביתה של האם ונישק את הקטינה. השניים הואשמו בשימוש בגוף קטין לפרסום חומר תועבה. מזג האוויר היום תחול עלייה נוספת בטמפרטורות שתחזורנה להיות רגילות לעונה. במשך היום ייתכן גשם קל בערי הצפון והמרכז. ולסיום, השבוע מציינים 130 שנים לחניכת מגדל אייפל בפריז. ביומן החוץ בגלי צה"ל דיברנו עם וירג'יני קופרי, מצאצאי אבי המגדל גוסטב אייפל. הוא השקיע את כל כספו במגדל עבורי ועבור משפחתי, זה מראה שאתה חייב להאמין בחלומותיך ותוכל להגשימם, כך וירג'יני קופרי. הרעיון המלא ישודר ביומן החוץ בגלי צה"ל מיד אחרי החדשות. אלה החדשות שעורכת לי עמרם אילת. I 
J.M. in the A.M. with Eitan Katz. Well, many of you, as we said earlier, many of you already are aware of the news that uh, the remains of Zachary Baumel are uh, either in Israel or other effects of his are on the way to Israel with the Prime Minister at this point from Russia. And the funeral is going to be taking place um, at 7 p.m. Israel time on, her, on Har Herzl, Mount Herzl in Jerusalem. Um, uh, the person who to us has been uh, at the side of the Baumel family for decades fighting this battle for Zach's release uh, has been Dr. Stuart Ditchick, who, of course, many of you know from Kids of Courage and many of you know is one of the world's best pediatricians. Uh, but because he was a um, classmate of Zach's when they lived in the United States in Brooklyn, uh, he took it upon himself years and years and years ago to uh, stand by uh, Yono Baumel and Mrs. Baumel to, um, to fight for Zach's release and to get as much information as possible. Dr. Stuart Ditchick is with us live via telephone. Dr. Ditchick, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good morning, Malcolm. Yesterday must have been a very interesting day for you. Uh, you stood by Yona Baumol for decades as he was convinced that uh, Zach was still alive. Yes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us did. It wasn't only me. The, you know, there's, there's many, many tens, if not hundreds of people who stood with the family for years. Uh, you know, we battled many obstacles. I haven't been closely involved for several years now, but uh, we battled governments, we battled terrorists, we battled uh, uh, sometimes members of our own community that were opposed to making a big noise about this case. And uh, Yona Bama was right for many years, which was that it was critical that not only Zach's case, but the case of all the missing soldiers not be ignored for political reasons now or in the future, because those boys are the reason we all have the freedoms we have today to travel to Eretz Yisrael, to live in Eretz Yisrael, and quite frankly, to live as free Jews in America. Yeah, the fact that he was an American citizen, you always thought would help, right? You always thought Zach being a U.S. citizen would, would, would aid the process when it came to him as opposed to some of the others. Yes, you know, we believe that, and I think all the families believe that, because quite frankly, family members of the missing soldiers would 
turn any corner to to recover their children. Uh, and I think all of the families recognized early on that Zach being a U.S. citizen and having parents who were very vocal and, and eloquent uh, could be parlayed to get information because the power of the U.S. government is still the greatest power in the world. Uh, and we, we benefited from that over the years because we filed lawsuits here in the United States. We utilized uh, political figures who we thought would be helpful. Some were and some weren't. Uh, that book has yet to be written, but uh, trust me when I say what you read in the newspapers, including on a morning like this morning, it's not always what it appears to be. Uh, things take place behind the scenes that nobody knows about, and quite frankly, that we don't need to know about as long as the results are positive. Uh, over the last 37 years, unfortunately, it, this took 37 years too long to resolve for the Baumel family. Uh, as you know, uh, uh, Zach's dad passed away in 2009. Uh, on paper, he passed away of heart disease. Uh, in reality, he passed away from a broken heart because he wasn't able to live and, and uh, uh, see resolution of Zach's case. Miriam, who I haven't been in touch with recently, but I was uh, obviously in contact with some of our uh, confidants who we've worked with for years yesterday. Obviously, uh, she's been... Uh, suffered terribly over the last 37 years. She's one of the most eloquent people I've ever come across, and uh, she's an amazing human being. So I'm grateful to Hashem that Miriam can see this to the end, that she can have closure and resolution. Uh, I, I think resolution is a bad word because she lost a son uh, yesterday, and uh, I think we all have to recognize that, that there's a grieving family right now. Uh, and although there's a lot of victory laps being taken politically, uh, in the real world, the Baumels lost a brother, and uh, uh, Miriam lost a son yesterday. Dr. Stuart Ditchick is with us live via telephone. The um, uh, the two figures who I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, you'll tell me if I'm right or wrong, the two figures that you always thought through this entire process would be the most helpful if they could be reached and convinced to help. Uh, were Arafat and Assad, meaning the current Assad's father. Would that be accurate, that those were the two you focused on during that time? In the early years, yes. I mean, from the time I was involved. Uh, however, I have to tell you, and, and this is really amazing because, you know, I was, I, I'm a pediatrician from Brooklyn. I'm not, a, I'm not an intelligence analyst, and I'm certainly not a negotiator. Uh, but Yona Baumel was a very good mentor and teacher to me. Uh, and Yona uh, always said, uh, at least in the later years that he was alive, that the key to the release of these boys is Russia. And the reason he said that, and, every, and I've written about it, I've spoken publicly about it uh, years ago, is because the Russians had influence over Assad more than any other government in the world. And quite frankly, Assad would not be sitting in Damascus today if it were not for the support of Vladimir Putin. Uh, so uh, Mr. Baumel always felt that outreach to the Russians should be imperative, and we've been making those outreaches over the last few years. Uh, I don't know if those outreaches uh, had anything to do with the current release, uh, but I can tell you that the Russians have been in the equation for years. Uh, the reason Yasser Arafat was part of the key is because uh, during the Oslo negotiations, he actually handed over uh, Zach's dog tags, uh, to the negotiators. They ended up back in Miriam Baumel's hands, thank God, years ago. 
and Arafat actually said to the negotiators and to Rabin at the time that uh, you know he'll let him know what happened to this soldier as soon as he gets everything he wants out of the Israelis. So Yasser Arafat knew about uh, Zach. How he got those dog tags is the subject of much controversy. Uh, remember that the PFLP, uh, the Palestinian Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Ahmed Jabril's group, uh, were involved in Zach's capture uh, and or his killing. We don't know yet. We know that the Syrians were involved because there was a tank uh, that was paraded through the streets of Damascus with soldiers on that tank. The Israeli uh, intelligence community denied the existence of those soldiers on that tank for years. Uh, we now know through lawsuits that took place in England recently through uh, my, my very close friend, Dr. Uh, Reverend Robert Carroll, that the British intelligence services were aware of that tank and those soldiers for years. Uh, I actually took a, an affidavit from Dean Brellis, a former Associated Press reporter, who reported seeing the tank in very good detail before he died. Uh, he was a witness to that on the roof of the British Embassy uh, uh, the day after the capture. Uh, and we now know that the British intelligence destroyed many of those files, uh, and under testimony recently, uh, it was discussed by retired individuals that those files were actually destroyed because the British wanted to preserve uh, relationships with the government of Syria. So there are many governments involved in covering up what happened to Zach and the boys. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was the Russians, and, and Yona Balmol knew this years ago, that the Russians were the key to this. And I have to tell you, this is, it's Yad Hashem, but it's also uh, Yona's influence over this case. Uh, he has said for years, and, and I shared with you confidentially this morning an email that I had sent to Rabbi Lazar. I never discussed that email with another human being in this world other than one of my sons uh, and my wife. Uh, I had reached out to Rabbi Lazar two and a half years ago, who's the chief rabbi of Russia, uh, once again, and I went back at him and said, Rabbi, you have had a discussion with him by phone. He was here during the Shlichus conference uh, two years ago. And I said, you have influence with uh, President Putin. Uh, I know Rabbi Lazar for many years. I, I did a favor for his family many years ago that, that I'm, I'm not at, at liberty to discuss it from, from a medical nature. And I said, I'm calling in a chip. You need to sit down with Putin. Uh, he didn't commit to doing anything, but if I know Rabbi Lazar, he did have that discussion with Putin. I'm not saying that that had anything to do with the release. I don't know that it did by any stretch of the imagination, because many people were asked to reach out to Putin over the years. Yeah, but it just reconfirms what you and Yona Baumol knew all that time, and that was that uh, the Russia was the key to the whole thing. Uh, and it also, I mean, what happened yesterday, I think, really shows us all um, <laughs> who, who, who's the boss in, the, in, the, in that area of the world, that's number one, and the uh, relationship that Russia and Syria have. Uh, and the um, and the desired relationship that some of these countries want to have with Israel, uh, if Israel was not in the position of strength that it it, it's in right now, I don't think this ever would have happened yesterday. Absolutely, I think uh, the the world needs Israel now more than ever uh, with uh, ISIS and uh, the influence of certainly of all the other countries in the Middle East. Uh, the world needs Israel now, and I think that was made clear very yesterday. When you have a meeting uh, this morning, as we've seen uh, in the news reports between uh, Putin and Netanyahu, uh, discussing the repatriation of Zak, uh, 
uh, I think that says a lot for what the world, uh, what Israel means to the world. Uh, I just want to add one thing, Nachum, if it's okay, that, sure. you know, we're all celebrating. Uh, the, the Baumel family, obviously, it's not a celebration. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a continuum, but there's still families out there whose kids are missing, uh, Israeli soldiers. And one of the great tragedies that happened yesterday from my perspective, is that the Katz and the Feldman family, who were missing during the same battle as uh, Zach went missing, still don't have closure on their children. Uh, so as much as we're uh, thrilled that we have Zach back and he is for Yisrael now, he can be buried properly uh, where he belongs, uh, there's still other families out there, specifically the Katzes and the Feldmans right now, uh, who, whose boys are not accounted for. So there shouldn't be victory laps today. There should be uh, re-energizing of the efforts to get their bodies back as well and to make sure those families get closure. No question about it. Um, you, were, you were with Zach in school till about what age? Zach moved to Israel around 1970. Uh, we went to Eitz Zach was three months older than me. I'm 58 years old. Uh, so we were about nine years old when nine to ten when we last saw each other, and it was that, uh, and it was, and it was that relationship that, from from being nine years old that spurred you to get involved in the case. Oh yeah, yeah. Zach was the king of rock candy, uh, <laughs> which I my parents never allowed in the house. <laughs> Oddly enough, Zach was a he was lot he was the guy me. to know, huh? He was the guy to know. <laughs> so every Shabbos afternoon that we got together. He managed to, you know, find me some rock candy on a string in his house, so it was good motivation for me to be with him. Uh, but Zach and I were were friends, as were so many others. The Isser Fruchter, who I was in touch with yesterday, is an, another classmate from Eitzchayim. He's been very active over the years and very vocal. Uh, there's so many of us who, who, you know, who knew Zach early on and somehow managed to find our way back to him, but... It took too long for us to find our way back to him. Yeah. Dr. Dietrich, I thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Nachum. Take care. Our uh, condolences, of course, to uh, Miriam Baumol and the entire family, but the significance, as Dr. Dietrich helped us, helped us describe just moments ago, of this event taking place, actually taking place, and the fact that uh, Russia's, uh, Russia has a desire to do this for Israel and to uh, step in in this situation is pretty remarkable. Thursday morning broadcast, more coming up here at JM in the AM. Earlier today, we remembered the um, amazing Cantor Sherwood Goffin, a great chazan, a great man, and a great friend. Played some of his music. If you missed any of it, please check out the early portion of JM in the AM from this morning. Our condolences to the entire Goffin family on the Chaz's passing. What a nickname, huh? Chaz. What a nickname. <laughs> I was thinking about that earlier. Condolences to the entire Goffin family on the passing of Chaz and Sherwood Goffin. Funeral 1030 this morning at the Lincoln Square Synagogue in New York City. And uh, we remember him fondly, to say the least. Thursday morning at JM in the AM with more. This one uh, brand new from uh, Eitan Katz.
I am. 
J.M. and the A.M. with um, Eitan Katz, brand new Kikarov off of Ashrecha. Thursday morning, my thanks to Dr. Ditchik for joining us. Uh, Zach Balmol's funeral, Har Herzl in Jerusalem, 7 p.m. Israel time. Here on this side of the world, we mourn the loss of, uh, I mean, the whole world is mourning, but we will, um, uh, the funeral of Chazen Sherwood Goffin as we mourn his loss will take place at 10.30 this morning at Lincoln Square Synagogue in New York City. And um, again, if you missed any of our early morning tribute to his memory, check out the early portion of this morning's JM in the AM. Thursday morning broadcast with 46 degrees, mostly sunny, and a high temperature of 58. Mazel tov going out to Jamie and Yoey Turkel. Many of you remember Jamie, an important cog in the NSN machine. For many years, well, Jamie and Yoey Turkel yesterday, the birth of a brand new baby boy. Mazal tov on their Bahar from all of us here at JM and the AM and to the extended Turkel and Roar families, we say Mazal tov from all of us here at JM and the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Arav Zebin and Zechonishmas Esther Basar Bilsavalevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The Medrash tells us the Rabbi Hanina says the work of the Mishkan was completed on Chafe Kislev, the 25th of Kislev. But Hashem delayed the building of the Mishkan until the month of Nisan. The concept was already derived, but it wasn't until Nisan that Hashem had it built. The reason is, the Medrash tells us, is because that when Yitzchak Avinu was born, that was considered to be the proper time. The Medrash is telling us that even though it was already on the 25th that it was prepared, it was not going to be until Rosh Chodesh Nisan that the Mishkan was going to be utilized. Rashi tells us, Ha Mishkan, Mishkan, Shnei Pa'amim. It says Mishkan twice. It is a remez. It is an allusion to the Beis Hamikdosh that twice would be taken because of the Averis of Klal Yisrael. As we know, it is Edus for Klal Yisrael that Hashem has forgiven the Misa of the Egel, the golden calf. Because of that, instead of Hashem taking out His wrath on the people, Chazal tell us He took out His wrath on the Atzim and the Avonim, on the wood and the stone. The Mishkan was testimony that Hashem forgave us. We learned that Avram Avinu and also Yaakov Avinu, they both felt that if Klal Yisrael deserved to be eliminated, that's what would have to be done. However, Yitzchok Avinu felt in such a case there should be rachamim, there should be mercy. Because of this, Hashem took out the charonaf, the anger, on the atzim and left Klal Yisrael, his people, intact. Because Yitzchok was the one who successfully negotiated the continued existence of Klal Yisrael. Hashem waited until the month when Yitzchak was born to be a simon to everyone, a sign that Yitzchak's argument on behalf of Klal Yisrael had been accepted. How great it is, the one who can be the Sanegar, the defender of Klal Yisrael, to stand up for Klal Yisrael at all times and continue our existence as a people. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you Morning Chizik. Have a nice day.
There he is, the great cantor Sherwood Goffin, Yom Shikulo. Any style of music, anything he could do, anything at all. And as I mentioned earlier, when it came to uh, revving up a crowd and getting everybody inspired to uh, demonstrate, to um, speak out on behalf of our brethren, Soviet jury, etc., there are really only two singers that come to mind who did it on a consistent basis and did it so well, and that's Shlomo Kalbach and the great Sherwood Goffin. Um, Chaz's funeral, because we called uh, Sherwood Goffin uh, Chaz, belovedly, uh, 10.30 this morning, Lincoln Square Synagogue on the Upper West Side. And our condolences, of course, to his entire family from all of us here at JM in the AM. I want to remind you that Aaron's Casino Farms in Queens has a uh, Aaron's Passover Mega Center open right next door with every brand of every item you could imagine. And I mean that. I mean, they've got everything you can imagine. It's insane, frankly. Um, so check it out and get your uh, get your shopping done for this uh, upcoming holiday of Pesach. Reminder, the tribute to um, uh, Rabbi Mrs. Yudin takes place this coming Sunday night. Those of you out there who would like to participate, go to the website, yudintribute.org, yudintribute.org, and... Uh, be counted among the supporters 
Vashomri Torah in Fairlawn in honor of Rabbi and Rebetzin Yudin in their 50 years. So amazing. A reminder, the 11th International Conference on Jewish Medical Ethics happens at the Gideon Putnam Resort and Spa in Saratoga Springs, New York, on Memorial Day weekend, starting May the 23rd. Dr. John Leukey, uh, Leanne Matlau, or by Dr. Edward Reichman, or by Dr. Avraham Steinberg, or by Dr. Shlomo Weissman, who we spoke to yesterday. They are all going to be part of it. Join for a weekend of inspiring learning surrounded by the serenity of Saratoga Spa State Park. Information about all of this, TorahInMotion.org. Again, that's TorahInMotion.org. More coming up. It's Thursday at JM in the AM.
Waking up, I'm living life, going places, so much strife Starting to think about what's gonna be Who knows, who cares, who dares to share a bit of what you feel inside Open up a little trust, cause we're all family Family 
Thursday morning with the Waterbury Yeshiva crew. Their big concert comes up Sunday night at the Master Theater in Brooklyn, New York with A.B. Rottenberg and Mordechai Ben David. Hold on, hold on. There they are at JM the AM with Hold On. Thursday morning broadcast. This is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Uh, well, Yeshiva University has uh, many sports teams. Um, in fact, you'd probably be surprised just how many and what types of sports teams they field, both in the men's and women's division of the NCAA. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that the most well-known and probably most followed of all the sports teams is the Yeshiva University men's basketball team, the Maccabees. We certainly have made a very big deal about them for the last, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 years or so. And uh, their coach for the last five years uh, is Elliot Steinmetz, and uh, we have spoken with him via telephone many times. I've always uh, dreamt of getting him in studio and having a full-length face-to-face conversation, and he has agreed, and now he is making it happen. The coach of the Yeshiva University men's basketball Maccabees, Elliot Steinmetz, in studio at JM in the AM. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, and congratulations I know things didn't end up exactly the way we wanted it to, but it was a phenomenal season. Um, I guess of the five years, you'd have to say last year, the one that ended in 2018, was the best of all of them because that ended with a Skyline Championship plus a visit to the NCAAs. But this one was not so bad, right? We'll take a cue from Chicago and say next year will be the best year. (laughs) And from what I hear, you're already starting to spread that message. 
We're working on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's listen. If you're not there with goals for, uh, you know, competing and and beating what you've done the year before, then then what's the point? Understood. But a lot of people would be surprised that you, as understated as you normally are, would make those goals public, which I am told you have done. And in addition to that, you know what I'm referring to, because it's a story that got around immediately when when at the Saracek tournament. You informed everybody that you would not be able to join them next year because it will coincide calendarically with the NCAA National Championships in Division Three. Yeah, so I guess you kind of figure it's uh, it's Shabbos and nobody's filming. <laughs> but, but I guess word spreads anyway. Oh, are you kidding? The second Abdullah was over, I heard about it. Um, no, we we have big goals, and you know I I, I think it's important. Uh, you know I've I've gotten asked a lot this year if um, if I worry about the expectations being high and if I worry about the pressure of expectations now that we've you know had the success that we've had the last few years. And my answer has been simple. I mean, we've always had those expectations, and I think we spoke about this last time we talked. Um, we've always had those expectations. I think the rest of the Jewish world is kind of catching up. Right. Um, and you know, so I thought it was important, certainly in in a in a room full of uh, you know high school students who kind of look up to our guys to kind of say to them, these are our goals. This is what we plan to do. Um, you know, listen, we're not we're not Patrick Ewing guaranteeing anything, uh, <laughs> but you know, these are the goals that we're working towards, and we think they're realistic, and we and we plan to accomplish them. You were simply discussing a scheduling conflict. That's all. Correct. No guarantees. With that in mind, then, it has to be, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it has to be, and devastating might be too strong, it has to be so disappointing when you're in the Skyline Championship and you're shooting, your team is shooting as poorly as they are from beyond the three-point line, and they're not hitting second-half free throws. If that is the goal and the expectation, it must be, it must eat you alive when you're going through that experience. It's definitely frustrating. Uh, thankfully, we have competitive players, so it's more frustrating for them, um, which you know puts them back in the gym, working hard, trying to uh, you know correct those things and and be better the following year. But it, it's it's definitely frustrating, and and devastating was a good word. I mean, you know, I talked to the guys a little bit after our you know after that loss about perspective and and life, and that's okay for a basketball game to be important, and and it's okay to feel upset about it. You know, just to have it's important to have a perspective on 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 life and what's real also. So how would you describe Describe the locker room after that game. Uh, very, very down. Um, you know, somewhat. I think sh- you know, shocked and surprised. I think guys. You know, I think we've built to a point where guys expect to win, uh, which is, I think is a great thing for you know confidence in terms of Yeshiva University athletics and everything. So you know, when you expect to do something and you have the you know expectation to accomplish it, and then you don't, uh, especially when you put in the work and the investment that you have over the course of the year. It's um, it's depressing. Was there also an element because of the disappointing end to the season, those two two point losses that unfortunately took you out of the Max Stern Athletic Center for the Skyline Conference Championship, which would have been unbelievable. I mean, not not just for the fans, but for the players as well. Um, when they when I, I assume your team, like most teams, has more confidence at home, and they might be sitting in that locker room at Farmingdale and saying to themselves, "Oh gosh, if we were home today, we would not have shot the way we did, and we would have performed much better." Yeah, there, there was definitely some of that, uh, you know, but we got outplayed in, in two games at home that, that cost us that opportunity. So we, you know, we did it to ourselves, so to speak, and we had to go on the road and perform. Well, some might argue that the referee had something <laughs> to do with that. And, and in this case, it's really not, it, it's not one of these, you know, crazy fan things that the refs did us in. There, there's a play that would have ended the game in our favor that the ref didn't catch. 
there was, but we we also gave up ninety something points, and right. you know we were we were averaging giving up about seventy, so we, we could have done a lot better of a job defensively in right. that game. The and best way to safeguard against the bad call is to have a ten point lead going into right. the few se- last few seconds which, of the game, which we did at a certain point in that second. Right, half. I know. You have to remind me. <laughs> and I wonder if you, I wonder how you view the fans when you're so you know obviously invested in this, and you are. You know, your, your stomach is turning as all this is happening, and the players, you can imagine the commitment that they've made, and we're going to talk about that, the insane commitment that Yeshiva University men's basketball players make to be part of this. I wonder how they view the fans who, you know, are on this high and on this low minute-to-minute as the game is going on. So it's become contagious for our guys. They, they love it, and it's actually helped us a ton in recruiting because, you know, we're able to kind of bring guys in or show guys film of, uh, of home games and say, look what we're playing in front of uh, every night. Uh, which is rare in Division Three. You don't see the kind of crowds in Division Three that you're seeing at Yeshiva University the last couple of years. Uh, it makes it a lot of fun, and our guys really have you know a ton of respect for the for the fans and for the students that come out, and it's it's really been great. And and it goes further. Our guys have started now going to other other sports games just to kind of try to repay the favor, so to speak. Wow, very interesting. So our role as fans is taken seriously. Yeah. It's not a uh, you know. Guys don't show up for a half an hour and think you know what's going on here on the court. <laughs> Someone, somebody asked me why I'm driving an hour and whatever it is into the city at 6 o'clock in the morning to come in when I can call in. And I said, because he shows up every game. So well, I got to show up at the studio. It just... I, I, it's going to take me a minute to recover from that one. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Elliot Steinmetz is coach of the University men's basketball team. You know, you and I have spoken and probably I, I probably have not really enumerated this directly for this audience because there are a lot of nuances to this and it's a, and I believe it's a sensitive topic but it, it 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 is a fact and I think you knew this coming into the job it is a fact whether we like it or not that Yeshiva University men's basketball team not only represents themselves as a team not only represents Yeshiva as a university and as an institution but represents the Jewish people and whether they like it or not whether a player is into that or not they better learn to live with it because that's what's going on. What's going on is every time you step on the court or on a bus or in, you know, or, or in the hallway of another institution, everyone's looking at you guys. These are the Jews. And for, in many cases, the only Jews they'll ever meet in their lives, right? Yeah, it's very true. And it's actually something we talk about you know, certainly before every season. I, I've even started talking about it with recruits. You know, I want them to be aware and understand that this is, you know, w- whether it's important to them or not, it's important to us. Uh, and it's something that kind of comes with the territory and it's a responsibility of playing here um, and it's not for everybody uh, but it's certainly proven to be for our guys and they've been great at it um, they take the responsibility very seriously that we see but this group seems to be and by the way here's a good opportunity for me to pay tribute to every YU team in history because every one of the teams took it seriously but for some reason this group to me, and remember, I've observed every team for the last 35 years. This group to me seems to take it, I don't know, to a different level. What is it about them that you would say? I don't know what it is. There's, there's just a certain pride and a camaraderie that these guys have. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because it is a diverse bunch within, within, right. within, you know, obviously the Jewish religion. We have kids from all over the spectrum right. in terms of Every their, background imaginable. Yeah, we really do. And they've just kind of really become brothers really, really quickly. Um, you know, and, and it, you know, it starts with the upperclassmen and it goes down to the freshmen and, and it just becomes something that kind of rolls year in, year out. And it, there's just a pride there. They're, they're, they, they understand what they're playing for. They understand why they're here. I think because we've been able to get some high-level players who had other options when they made this decision, you know, they didn't look at it as, oh, I'm settling and I'm not going Division One. They looked at it as, hey, I'm going to play for Yeshiva University. Right, and that's it. It's a unique 
pursuit in the world of sports, right. which is funny for some people to hear that, but it really is a big deal. And you can tell, by the way, I, I think very often people say this about our Brooklyn Nets. I think you can tell very often the spirit of the team, by the way, the bench reacts. And your bench, I mean, they, they, they act during the game as if they are on that court every minute with anybody who's playing. And I think that's really important. Yeah, that's the goal, and you know, we talk about it all all the time. It's uh, you know the you know the success of a corporation is really based on what the back end is doing and mm. the back office is doing. Um, you know, it's it's real nice to be the salesman and to go out and to meet the clients and take them out to dinner. You know, those are the guys who are on the court playing every game. But if there are not guys back in the office who are putting in the work and you know working those guys hard in practice, so to speak, then you're not going to be in a good place when it gets out there. On the topic of representing the Jewish people well. It, would you say that that often or sometimes players who would react a certain way to calls and to moves by the opponents, etc., um, purposely hold themselves back uh, and try to control themselves even better because they know, again, that they're representing the Jewish people, not just themselves? I'm sure there's some of that. You know, I, I don't know that we see it as much in terms of reaction as we do in action. I think in terms of reaction, a lot of them, they're basketball players. So if there's a bad call, they're frustrated. Um, you know, I think they, they act a certain way and, they, and even react a certain way based on their upbringing and where they are, for sure. We see it more, I think, in, in action that you just wouldn't expect. You know, we, we've had games where in, in, a, in a big spot, uh, you know, an opponent will fall down. Uh, and instead of just running back into the play, one of our guys in the middle of a live play will pick him up. Right. Um, and I'm sometimes sitting there, get back, get back. Oh wow, you know what? That's that's better. That's bigger than the game right now. Go, you know that's. And, the, and what I'm getting at, by the way, with this whole topic, is that when we observe you as a coach, it seems to us. And when I say us, you know, I sit with a group of fans, different ones each time, usually, many of them from the Siegel family. And sometimes we, we get the feeling that you'd really like to react a certain way. But you, as the yeshiva coach, know that, that there's, there's no alternative. You have no choice but to remain as calm and focused as possible. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think, I think part of it is being at yeshiva. Part of it also is just being a young coach and trying to you know, stay humble. I, you know, I think I'm learning new things every day. I think I'm learning about you know, certainly you know, what the officials are seeing in games. I'm learning what opponents are doing. I mean, I'm only doing this five years. I'm, you know, a glorified high school coach who's just kind of jumped into this. Um, so I'm trying to stay humble on all fronts, but there's no doubt it's always in the back of our mind what we're representing and, and you know, knowing that a certain reaction, um, you know, in a, in a poor way is going to get just blown out, you know, in, in a big way because of who we are. Well, if you're then, you know, as you just described yourself, do you get too much credit for the success of Yeshiva University men's basketball? Uh, I, I don't know that I get a lot of credit. Oh, you I, get a lot of credit. Then, then, then yes, I get too much people credit. People look to you as the secret for the turnaround of the men's program. No, the secret of the turnaround is guys like Mike Berg and Simcha Halpert and, and Ryan Terrell and Gabe Leifer, guys like that who chose to come to IU and play basketball. And that's it. And it's only the players because – but you know that coaches – what did I say about college coaches? They need three things, recruiting, X's and O's, and inspiration, right? Those are the three things. And then there's the old get me to the last minute of the game, you know, with a chance to win, and I'll and, and I'll help you guys win the game, right? Am I, am but, I right? But those, it, those are the basic philosophies of college basketball coaching. But across all <laughs> across all divisions, you put it in the right order. Recruiting is number one. Yeah, it's the players. The players are the ones who are going to get wins. So it must frustrate you um, to hear what Nahum Siegel has heard over the last couple of months. Um, as you know, <laughs> as you know, there are years when the Yeshiva League, and when I say Yeshiva League, I'm including Sarachek around the country. There are years when the United States Yeshiva League is filled with some great potential ball players. The rumor is 
that in 2019, there, there, we don't have that many high-level players around the country that potentially could play for this YU team. I think it goes in cycles. I don't know that I would call it so much of a down year. You know, it's it's tough when you're comparing. You know, when you're comparing players to some of the guys who have come out of uh, you know the so-called you know national yeshiva league right. over the last few years, it, it's tough to find guys that are going to be like uh, you know like a Gabriel Leifer or a Ryan Terrell or some helper guys like that who you know are just so high level and and people tend to compare. There are plenty of really good players out there that can fit, you know, roles on Yeshiva University team. Even today? Even today. Because the rumor is, or that's a bad way of putting it, the observation is right. that some of the greats from yesteryear would not be able to make this year's team. Is that too much of an exaggeration? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it depends. I think I think if you're great, you're great at any point. You know, I, I certainly think that the level has gone up. I think we're recruiting probably a little bit of a higher level than it's been. Um, even in the last, even even in my first couple of years, I think we're at a higher level. Uh, as to who would make the team and who wouldn't, I always tell guys like this: <clears throat> there's probably 25 or 30 guys who can show up at tryouts, and I would say probably a good 20 of them are, um, <clears throat> excuse me, are uh, are college level players and mm-hmm. certainly good enough to play for Yeshiva University. The problem is you're not putting out 20 guys on the floor, and right. you're probably not taking 20 on the roster. So what ends up happening is you probably have you know, five to ten guys walking around campus that are good enough to play for us. And it's just not, it's just a numbers game. And you tell them what's expected from them in terms of representing the Jewish people. You tell them what's expected from them in terms of their schedule at Yeshiva. Do you tell them what's expected from them in terms of the early morning work workouts and other things that you've implemented that previous coaches did not have at Yeshiva? Yeah, I, I think it's important when we when we bring somebody in, whether it's for a visit or even if we're just you know talking in terms of recruiting, that that everybody knows exactly what's there, you know, what the program is, you know, certainly what the school is like, um, you know, because again, we're recruiting on all ends of the religious spectrum, so you don't want somebody walking in and then a year in being like, oh, you sold me a you know a bill of goods and this was supposed to be something right. I didn't think it was. I want everybody to know exactly what they're walking into. What and, time are they expected in the gym in the morning? Uh, usually six fifteen. Six fifteen in the yeah. gym. Uh, and if the National Yeshiva League is, again, not disappointing, but let's say for argument's sake, you know, it's going to be a challenging year to recruit well there, would you go to other countries to recruit? Because your team, as opposed to some of the historic Yeshiva University teams, is really North American heavy when in some years, in the last 20, 30 years, it's been very Israel heavy and, and really other countries as well. Right. We, we look everywhere. I mean, it really is a question of where the talent is. Um, you know, if you look at our roster now, we're, we're getting a ton of talent from California. Yeah, it's um, all California. It's, it's amazing. Um, you know, we are looking at a couple of players overseas. Um, you know, it's something that we do, uh, you know, every year. Um, you know, we're, we're a little bit loaded right now coming back. I think we, we're, we're graduating only, uh, only two seniors or, or you know, right. possibly three. So we're, we're really a little bit loaded up, which works out well in terms of, uh, in terms of making it easier for, for recruiting season. And the goal is to get, if you end up on the road or at home, is to make sure that in those really tough late-season games, you shoot as well as possible. That is the biggest disappointment when you get there and, that, and your shooting percentage is unfortunately too low. And that's really what it comes down to. But you have to give credit to the other team because their defense obviously has a lot to do with that. And one other thing, Mr. Steinmetz, and I said this to you after last year, now there's a big target on your back. Now the yeshiva are no longer lovable losers. Now yeshiva are, you know, at the top of the game, at the top of the conference, and you could see it, by the way, as you go through the season, I'm sure you felt it, the teams have an extra motivation to defeat Yeshiva University. 
Yeah, I, and, and we love that. I mean, I certainly do. I, I think that's what we were building for and what we were trying to get to. Um, you know, it's nice to it's nice to feel that, and 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 it was something that we saw. You know, as we went through the conference second time around, and we started to play teams that were already eliminated from the playoffs, and we were just yep. stuck in these battles. And yep. you know, I, I told our guys, it's it's their Super Bowl. You know, yep. for, you know, we're sitting in first place. We had won a number of games in a row. Um, and we're playing a team that's really, you know, they're mathematically eliminated. This is their Super Bowl, their opportunity to kind of end the streak or, or knock us, you know, knock us down to second place, whatever it is. So it's, you know, we're getting everybody's best, which is a lot of fun. Uh, the winning streak was amazing. It was fun. The winning streak was amazing. There were some experts in the stands who said the best thing for Yeshiva would be to lose before they get to the playoffs. And, of course, that didn't work <laughs> in our favor. And I thought that was ridiculous, frankly. But you know how it is. You know? Yeah, it's not, it's not something I've ever subscribed to. Like, I keep saying the best thing for the Brooklyn Nets would be not to make the playoffs this year. But, you know, I don't right. know if that's, uh, if that's a really good observation or not. Also, what do you say to those who sit in this room the day after the championship and question your starting lineup? Or question those who you decide to play longer than others. Or use players who you generally have not used during the season. Or don't use players who often have come and have changed games during the season. What do you think of the people who sit around this table on Monday morning after hearing Yoshua Siegel call the game on Max Live and have all these things to say? I think if we were not making the playoffs every year and competing in championships, people wouldn't be having those conversations and care enough. So I think it's really great. I think it's awesome. I think uh, people should criticize. People should have thoughts about it. I love that we're a topic of conversation. Right. Um, you know, and, and I love hearing it. You know, uh, you know, I, I don't feel responsibility to necessarily answer it. Um, but I, you know, I think we, you know, we look at the success that the players who have been out there have been having. You know, whether it's this season winning 17 games in a row, whether it's last season uh, going to the NCAA tournament for the first time in school history. And I think their accomplishments really speak for themselves. So you don't sit in your car on the way home and do the if only? If only I would have played this guy or not have had so much faith in this guy? I really don't. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll think through the strategy of the game. I'll think through certain plays that happened in the game. You know, there's occasionally a time where you'll think about a sub, and if another, but you never know. I mean, you could you could put a guy. Listen, we, you know, last year championship game, we're struggling at the beginning of the game. Nobody seems to remember we were down 12, 13 points right. to start that game. And on a whim, we throw Justin Hoden in the game, and six, six for six three-pointers later in the first half, we're right. suddenly blowing them out. As, as your coach, Benji Ritz, Ritholtz, said, arguably the greatest half in the history of Yeshiva University of Basketball, and I think that's a good argument. I'm not even sure it's arguable. Right. It, it's unbelievable. When yeah. you think about it, it's just unbelievable. And, it, and it's sort of like, uh, you know, like he didn't play that much this year. And I don't think he needed to. Like, he had, he had done it all. Like, yeah, yeah. what else is he going to accomplish at this point? Yeah, unfor- <laughs> unfortunately, he had some injury issues this year, which, ah. which, which, was, uh, which was tough for him. But, um, I mean, yeah, he's never going to be forgotten in Yeshiva, in Yeshiva basketball history for what he did last year. Yeah, I, I mean, kids, uh, kids will watch that video. They'll not believe what, the, what they're seeing before their eyes. A couple of basketball questions while you're here, not just Yeshiva, but in general basketball. What is the uh, halftime discussion like? We always, as fans, hear about halftime adjustments. Is it always focused on one or two adjustments, or are there other things going on in that room during halftime? So my, my favorite thing after a game where we go into halftime down a couple of points and then we go and win the game and everybody is talking about the coach's adjustments mm-hmm. and how great they did, right? We don't make that many adjustments <laughs> at halftime. We're, we're not that smart. Um, I mean, really, it's really, it's really about we, we have our plan, right? We, we, we have a certain style that we play, and what we're trying to do at halftime is generally just 
correct where we've been off the path. So, you know, for example, if we um, if we feel like we haven't gotten enough ball reversals in the first half and therefore we're shooting 42% from the field as opposed to our game average this year, which was about 53, we'll say, hey, you know, we, we only had, you know, we, we shot, you know, two for 13 in the first half when we didn't reverse the ball, but we shot, you know, four for five when we reversed it twice. You know, wh- why are we going away from what we do? You know, let's make sure we get back to what we do. And that's not really an adjustment. That's kind of just, you know, like a little bit of a kick in the pants of what we're supposed to be doing. But if a team double teams a player that's unexpected or plays a zone or man t- or whatever, any of that stuff. In other words, what you're saying is that adjustment's being made immediately. It's not, you're not waiting till halftime right. to, 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 you know, recreate the game plan, so to speak. Right. And frankly, with what we do offensively, it's not a major adjustment. It's generally, you know, it's just generally an understanding of spacing and it's stuff that we've been prepared for. And it's really just recognition and then reacting the right way. So the huddle is much more important than halftime because that's where real adjustments are being made. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think the huddle, I think even more important than the huddle and even more important than halftime is just having good leadership on the court. You know, we we have smart players and these guys are able to kind of look at each other in the course of a live play and adjust themselves to what's going on on the court. Don't you find it hard to communicate with the players now because there's so many fans in the arena? I'm being serious now. Isn't it it's louder and more difficult to do that? There's yeah, no no doubt. That that definitely is an issue and you kind of have to, you know, make sure your captains know to look over every so often in right. case you do want to tell them something. But it's very often in a game where you'll, you know, and, and somebody will say to me after a game, oh, you guys ran a great set in, the, you know, the middle of the second half where you got, the, you know, Terrell had a little guy on him and you got him in the post and it was an easy bucket. And we didn't, we didn't call a play there. You know, Donnie Katz recognized it or Gabe Leifer recognized it, you know, got the ball over to Halpert and he, you know, pointed Terrell into the post and then they got him the ball. The coaches did nothing there. These guys just get it. You know, they have an understanding of the concept of what we're trying to do. Do you feel bad for other coaches who don't know how to handle Gabe Leifer under the basket? <laughs> I feel bad for anybody who has to guard that kid right now. And what's and what's interesting is that he he I don't know he has a style about him that's just it seems different than most conventional basketball players. Yeah, he's um, it's it's interesting. I've, I've heard him compared to a lot of different kind of players. Uh, the most interesting one I heard recently was uh, was another coach in our conference said he's like uh, the skyline Tim Duncan. Hmm, interesting. That's interesting. I guess like slow, fundamental, plotting, but he's surprisingly athletic. Right. And I guess I, I, to us, it's sort of like he comes out of nowhere. Like, you know, he accelerates yeah. at, a, at a rate that's un, un, unanticipated, that's unexpected. And then when he gets to around the basket area, forget it because he's just, you know, he's amazing underneath that basket. And uh, we know what happened once he joined your team two years ago. All of a sudden, the winning started and, yeah. and look what happened. It's pretty amazing, um, and and we should mention, by the way, that that uh, that the majority of the players, if not all of those who you mentioned in this conversation, have all been cited with awards and All America stuff, and and second team and first team, and I mean, it just keeps coming. Every every other day, you're posting these Skyline Conference and National NCAA awards. It must be amazing to see them recognized that way. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, the the, the one that we didn't get that I really wanted was um, was Tal Guetta. Uh, who I, I put up for uh, for defensive player of the year in our conference, and I really thought had done a great job this year. So I'll get a chance now to at least give him some recognition. <laughs> but he, um, you know, he did a fantastic job, and and those guys deserve it. They do. And you know what's what's cool about those guys is that they always turn around right away. And and we have you know we have a, a team WhatsApp chat, and they right away thank the team. You know, for for when they get the award, it's you know they recognize that without their teammates, they're not you know they're not anywhere. Has your schedule been set for next year yet? Our schedule is set for next. Uh, year. Is it going to be very different in terms of the type of competition? Because I know that over the years you've tried to increase in non-conference play 
the level that your team is playing, the type of teams your team is playing. Is that going to be very different this coming year? It is, um, and, and for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're adding a team to the conference. Uh, Manhattanville is actually coming back to the conference. Mm. And you probably remember them sure. from back when I played. They right. were in the conference. Um, so that'll change our conference schedule. It will not be 20 games. It'll be 16. Uh, which allows us to now play nine non-conference games instead of only five. Got it. Which I've been wanting for years. It gives us an opportunity to really up our schedule in terms of the uh, strength of schedule, which probably cost us the at-large bid this year. Yeah. There uh, may have been an at-large an at large bid? There, there's, I mean, it's, it's a possibility. We just didn't have a strong enough strength of schedule this year. Um, so it's, you know, it's something that's a possibility. It's not something that Skyline team generally gets, but you know, we're, we're working towards changing that. That's interesting. We as observers have been told and surmised all these years that there's no such thing as a skyline at large bid i i don't know if it's happened in the past i'd have to go and look right. um it's certainly it's certainly possible i mean if you're mm-hmm. if you're one of the top teams in the in the country and you lose in that championship game and your strength of schedule is strong enough and the you know the ncaa committee feels you deserve it you know they could put you in. interesting so we might see yeshiva against what type of teams that we haven't seen them against before so we're we're going to play and I, and I don't remember the list offhand right. next year but, but give me one or two that you remember yeah i mean we're going to play williams again which mm-hmm. is which is great top they're, 10 they're top 10 in the country this year um, we're gonna go and play um, uh, NJCU out in Jersey, which is a which is an NJAC team, which which they were number one in our region this year. Um, but we're playing, I think, of the nine games, I believe seven of them were either regionally ranked or in the NCAA tournament. Do your players know this? They, they do. They're excited. Yeah. Are they oh, excited? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> These guys are built different. I'm telling you, these guys are excited for competition. They want the challenge. Oh yeah. They want the challenge, and they're gonna meet that challenge. Uh, and in some of those games, they are going to prevail, no doubt. Yep. It's pretty amazing, the whole thing. Uh, the team has had an opportunity to spend Shabbos together, am I right? They have, yeah. And that might surprise some of the people listening, that that you know this whole, I don't know, this whole carryover um, from, you know, from the court to, to off the court also includes you know, these religious experiences together. Yep. Uh, what is that like? So I, I wasn't able to be at the one that they had this year, but right. they, you know, they came back just, you know, really talking about it. I mean, Shabbos is a special day in general, and, and to have the guys kind of have it together, um, it, it creates just a, a, like a family bond, like a real strong unity. And they, um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's an advantage that we have over, over anybody we're playing against. It's really the, the, you know, kind of the brotherhood and the, uh, and the camaraderie that these guys have. And I think, you know, having a Shabbos together enhances it. I think you see it across the, you know, entire, you know, religious spectrum, like it, whether it's, uh, you know, an NCSY Shabbaton or, or any kind of, uh, you know, camp event. Shabbos always just has something special right, to it. That's and I think true. that applies here also. Uh, would you prefer to eliminate all Saturday night games if you had your chance? No, I actually enjoy them. I think the crowds are great. I know I know people think that the our guys— The players must not like them. I, I think it's tough because they don't get to shoot around during the day, yeah. and they're coming in, obviously, some of them after a long day, and, you know, it's— uh, yeah, but I think it's good for our fans. I think. It's I also assume they have to restrict their diet on Shabbos, which is a pain in the neck. Right. Probably true. Yeah. I'm not sure all of them do. But <laughs> right. And, and that also becomes a pain yes, in the neck. It does. So you wouldn't eliminate Saturday Night No, games? I still enjoy it. I think it's great for them. I think it's good for the school. Some said that the the last Saturday night game of the season you would have won if it wasn't on a Saturday night. And I never buy into that stuff. <laughs> Don't you love all these theories that are going on as you're coaching a game? Yeah. Do you get along with the other coaches in the conference? I do. Yeah, I have a very good relationship with them in general. And I don't know, are they are are the majority of them there in their schools for many years? Like, are they legends in their program at this point? There are a few that have been there a long time. There's a few that are newer. There's there's a couple that are you know there a, long, a shorter time than I have been. But um, you know, 
from from the you know elder statesmen to the newer guys i've really gotten a chance to meet a lot of you know spend time with all of them obviously and i get along with all of them really well hmm. and this whole experience does it give you a greater appreciation for the yeshiva teams of the 50s 60s 70s who likely had a lot more anti-semitism that they faced in that era uh, that probably were much more uncomfortable than you are walking into some of the arenas, you know, even here in the New York area, I'm not just talking about the NCAAs, but even here in the New York area. I mean, you, you must have a, a, even as a player, I'm sure you had a much greater appreciation for those who preceded you because times were very different. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, and, it, and it's been great because we've had people reaching out from those eras. I mean, we were sitting at a team dinner last night in, in a restaurant and two or three people came over. One of them had played in the 50s and he you know, couldn't stop talking about how excited he was that we were in the restaurant. Were your players excited to yeah, do that? Yeah, they thought it was great. They, they were blown away by it. But we've, and we get letters occasionally from guys who have played or emails. So it's, it's, you know, there's an appreciation and, and, it, and it's very cool. Some of them show up at games now. Um, you know, come over and introduce themselves. So it's it's a lot of fun, but there's definitely a, a major respect and appreciation for what they did. You know, a lot of them were doing it without a home gym. Right. Um, they were traveling to practices, traveling to games. Um, you know, and and the truth is, you know, without all the work that those guys did and the coaches before me, you know, to get us into the NCAA, into the Skyline Conference, you know, to really kind of forge a path. You know, we're not here doing what we're doing. Does the team have a restaurant of choice? <laughs> I don't. I don't think they do. I mean, we we, we, we were in uh, at the Upper West Side last night, but they, they don't have. I think those do guys the restaurant tours know who's sitting there in their restaurant? Do they get it? <laughs> it, it was. Uh, we, we we had a lot of people come over to the table. It was pretty cool. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. I have to get. I have to get my people to uh, spy you guys out, so I know where you are, and I can come. I can come join you guys. Um, the um, the other you mentioned a, a, a few minutes ago about your players feeling the obligation to go to other sports and be in the crowd when I guess volleyball and and a lot of other sports are taking place up at Yeshiva. Is it is it difficult? That's the wrong word, but does it cause friction on campus when when every player in every women's and men's sports at Yeshiva knows that the world primarily focuses on only one team? I don't think so. I think I think every athlete that's there is there because they want to compete in their sport and they want to kind of put their sport on the map. I mean, if you look at Yeshiva University and, and the teams that have had the most most success over the last few years, it, it's not men's basketball. We're up there, but look what the tennis team is doing. Right. You know, our men's tennis team. I don't think they've lost a skyline game in like five years. Right. Um, with many championships in a row. With many championships, with NCAA wins. You know, they're just really doing a great job over there and on that on that side. And I think every program, including the basketball program, is kind of aspiring to have that kind of success. Um, so there's no resentment. There's no, no so. and the athletic director is able to keep everybody in check. Yeah, he does a real good job. And, with it. and there's a reality. The reality is that the world is, for whatever reason, focused on men's basketball. It's one of the most popular sports in the world. It's well, they're think, focused right. on men's I, I mean, basketball. It's, I think it's the same across, uh, you know, Division One, Two, II, and Three. Right. That's the way things are. Um, and you mentioned earlier that um, there's an expectation that every player who you speak to, interview, recruit, etc. Uh, they're given the entire list. One of them is conditioning. And not to make fun of our community, but um, it's not one of the things we're well known for. Let's put it that way. Um, and in fact, some some surmise that the effort to get the YU men's basketball team to be in the condition they need to be in would be a very, very big challenge. How has that gone? They're making what type of commitment year-round to stay in shape? 
So I, I actually think even from the, uh, from the community standpoint, I think things have changed over the last number of years. I mean, if you look, it's changed in the world in general. There's right. kind of whole move towards fitness. But even in our community, a lot of the events that are now going on, even like charity events, are all focused around athletics. You know, And I know you've been supportive of a lot of them, like, like for example, um, the Oh Hello XC that's coming up that, that I'm involved with. It's 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 based around athletics in terms of our guys. I think a lot of them, and I think this is the reason a lot of these players are so much better than we were at our age. They're just spending more time on it. They're more in shape. They they work out on their own, um, you know. But in terms of what we're doing, we have guys who are just committed year round to working hard, um, to staying in shape. We give them an off season program to work off of. We have a strength and conditioning coach who does a fantastic job with our guys preseason and postseason at the school and during season. Um, and it gives an They're working now? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Our guys are in the weight room and in the gym pretty much every day. So you probably were watching what they were eating last night in that restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> some, like, some, some of them need it. <laughs> you're like the cat mother. <laughs> yeah, some of them need to get bigger, so it's not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That happens a lot in sports where you want guys to bulk up. Yeah. I get that. Uh, we will not address um, an issue that I'm sure you thought I would. because You know why? Because not only do I finally understand it, I think I can finally address it myself. And that is why some uh, players um, gravitate toward wearing a yarmulke on the court and others do not. And I think I finally, after 40 years, I think I finally got it. And it's not a judgment call or anything on anybody. But I will point out that, that you, you have certain high-profile players on your team, many of whom did not grow up wearing yarmulkes in their gym, which is, again, the primary reason why they wouldn't, you know, and yet they've made the move to go ahead and do so because they now know, yep. as we discussed earlier, that they really are representing the Jewish people, whether we like it or not, because yarmulke really doesn't you know, mean much, in right. term, but it does. In other words, you know, that, that's the perception out there, that you know, if you're going to represent the Jewish people, you must have a yarmulke on your head. So a big shout-out to them, and, and we don't have to talk about that. But one thing I need you to discuss with me before you leave sure. and before we wrap up is this you know, you, you, you give the – and we know each other a long time. And I would say from the time I've met, I met you many decades ago at this point, you've always been all business. You're, you're, th- th- that, that is your profile, basically. You know, there's a task to do. Let's go do it. Let's accomplish, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Not in any way to suggest that you're not a friendly, sociable person, but you know when there's a task. I'm not. <laughs> but you know when there's a task to be done, you take it very seriously. That would indicate to me that when you as and you know, again, following basketball my whole life, that would indicate to me that when you're a basketball coach, uh, you are essentially focused and do not want to be bothered by anybody other than your associate coaches, and you have a great team, you have some wonderful assistant coaches. I do. And obviously your players. And that's it. You know, you're not interested in other distractions. That's the impression you give. And then during a game, you know, I could tell you that I think twice before going over to say hi to you because I know you're in the zone, so to speak, etc. Yet with all of that, you, I don't know if the word is insist or whatever word you want to use, you make sure to include as primary members of your team People that I guess for this audience's uh, um, for this audience, I would say from the Yachad community. I'm saying it that way only because a lot of people know exactly who I'm talking about, and they're wonderful people that we know from Camp Masora sure. and other places, etc. And you 
as as much as you are focused and likely would not want Nahum Siegel sitting next to you during a game, right? Likely. Probably wouldn't even want family members of yours sitting next to you doing a game. But if a Yachad member wants to sit next to you during the game and give you water during the game and advise you during a huddle during the game, for that you will have patience. Explain it to me. So I, I just think there are some things that are that are bigger than whatever than whatever you're actually doing. I mean, I, I, you know, I, as you know, this is not my full time job. I'm I'm a lawyer by right. trade, and I you know I have a commercial real estate practice <laughs> in in Valley Stream. And if I'm sitting at work during the day, you know, at my firm, I'm not going to want uh, you know my family members coming in and talking to me about work. I'm not going to want you know anybody except for maybe my you know my partner or my associates at work talking to me about work things because we're focused. Um, but if you know if if JJ calls me up, or, or you know another, you know another manager, or even obviously even a player, it's something that's just bigger than that moment. So you you know you take it. The same thing, the same thing in a game, or the same thing in um, in a practice. Um, you know this means so much to them, and, and and because it means so much to them, that's that's in that's just contagious. Like then comes it means to you know means a lot to us afterwards. Um, I, I love having them there. It's just it's a ton of fun. You know, JJ's over there. He makes sure that nobody takes my seat during timeouts. That's, that's like that's his. <laughs> that's he's his given job. himself that role. So <laughs> if if you watch during games, he sits right next to me, and then you know as soon as there's a timeout, he puts his legs on my chair. Wow. You know, and then and Menachem is like, you know, always has a thought about the game. Always, uh, you know, always wants an observation, to learn what's going right? on. Always has an observation. First one to go get water for the players, for the coaches. Comes to practices in the morning sometimes. Um, you know, just he loves to be around. He came to our team dinner last night. You know, and he just he loves to be around it. And they've become real, you know, we call them assistant coaches and managers. But they've become a real part of that family and a real part of the team. And I think it's really good for them and it's really good for our guys. All right. So you have been a Yeshiva League player and a Yeshiva League coach. And there are players and coaches listening right now. And we know that sometimes – Things can be taken very seriously in the Yeshiva League, and things can get very heated, etc. Uh, would you say that this is a good example of how one could use their position, both as player and coach, to really not just do chesed, but to teach their players, you know, what priorities are? I think it's important. We used to do it when I was at Hank and uh, and North Shore coaching high school. We used to try to take at least one Sunday out per season, um, and I would arrange it. My cousin works uh, works at Yachad, and I would arrange it with her, and we'd go and run a clinic for you know for Yachad kids on a Sunday morning, for example, for an hour or two. Um, you know, I've tried. Uh, we've tried to instill the same thing at Yeshiva. Uh, they have what's called the Makor program at Yeshiva, which is right. which is for the you know for the for the guys that you're talking about in terms of Menachem and JJ who sit with us. They're part of that program. Um, you know, we've had our guys run clinics for them once a week during the uh, during the course of the school year. Um, you know, it's just it's it's an important thing I think to you know to be able to give back a little bit to the community. I've had my guys go and do clinics at. Um, at our place in uh, in New York, which is you know a program for at-risk sure. teenagers, right. um, and something that we plan to do again. Uh, I just think we've you know, and and Daniel Tamir, one one of my assistants, has really been um, the driving Wonderful force. Guy. Yeah, it really is, and been driving force behind this kind of uh, finding chesed opportunities for our guys, so that they're they're not just there for school, they're not just there for basketball, they're there for you know bigger lessons in life. And if someone listening has a suggestion for you in that area, Absolutely. you want to hear it. Of sure, of course. Unbelievable. And, and you should know also that there's certain players of yours that, you know, again, pregame is so intense. You know, no one thinks it is because there's a shoot around and layups and all that. But it, guys are getting ready to play a game, and yet they come over, they say hi to fans, and especially the fans that come on a regular basis, and they appreciate it. And 
you know, and every time I go over to a player after a game just to say great game, the first words out of the mouth, thank you so much for coming. And that's, it's it just, I don't know, there's something about that that I think is so great. Yeah, I mean, they're good kids, but it also, you, you see it. It means something to them that you're there. It means something to them that the fans are there. It means something when their family shows up. It's, it's important to them to have that support because, you know, they are working hard and they are putting in a ton of hours. Um, and it's not easy to be a student athlete. It's really just not an easy thing, in, in, in this, especially in a school like Yeshiva where right. the curriculum is just so heavy. Um, but they appreciate the sport. They really love it. The administration of the university? Awesome. They, they've you work well with them. Yeah, they've been so supportive. It's really been amazing. Unbelievable. I'll tell and you. Rabbi Berman calls after games occasionally, comes to games. He's He's been great. Elliot Steinmetz is the coach of the Yeshiva University men's basketball team, the Maccabees, and uh, they'll restart their battle on the court, I guess, in November, right? That would be the time? The games, yeah. Right, the games will start. Yeah, good point. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll actually start practice probably a little earlier than usual. We're going to have to get a waiver from the NCA because of the Chagim. Because the Chagim are all October. They're all October. So we would lose practice days when we're allowed to start, so we'd have to get a waiver to start. Early. Is that a battle, or they'll do no, it for you? we've done it in the past. And they will do it for okay. you. So that means that practices will likely begin for Yeshiva around Labor Day. Probably somewhere around there. And is it true that you, you are required to have no communication with the team at certain times during the year? Is that accurate? We're allowed to communicate. We're not allowed to do any kind of basketball activity, um, basically till October 15 or whatever the waiver is. From day. now? Mm-hmm. From, after from the, now, from after the D three championship, I believe it is. So, if you, for instance, I mean, I, I, you know, nitpick kind of question. I'm just curious if you, if you're, I don't know, involved in some basketball tournament or something with the team, would that be a problem? There are different things that are allowed. I mean, I can't be running a practice. I can't be, you know, running clinics for them or training them. Um, if I happen to be playing basketball in the same place they are, I imagine that's not right. Can your conditioning coach program. work with them? Uh, he can, yeah. Your assistant coaches can't. Cannot. A little strange, no? The NCAA rules are a little bit all over the place. <laughs> you, you never can figure them out. Huh? That's why I, I, my first my first action is always to either make a text or a phone call to you know either our AD or our compliance officer anytime we want to do anything and just say, hey, I know it sounds like a stupid question, but I want that to make that sure could that. include last night, frankly. Yeah, well, no, last night's yeah, we're allowed to have a team dinner. Right, understood. Yeah. But I'm saying like any Correct. gathering like that, yes. you may you may say to yourself, yeah. wow, boy. Are they allowed to go to? Are you allowed to go to a Daniel Katz's wedding? <laughs> Dottie Katz will allow you to. I, I will be going to that. I'll to, whatever I got to do, I'll be there. Is that wedding being planned around the season schedule or not? I don't even know. You have no idea. No, because I don't know. I would think that you know it would be be, be beneficial to have that wedding either before or after the season. Would you agree? I, I would think so, but I, I'm not going to get in the way. <laughs> I'll tell you. I, I don't know how I think of this stuff. It's crazy. Anyway, um, to you and the entire Yeshiva University men's basketball team, I say thank you because uh, we get so much enjoyment and so much pride from everything that you guys are doing, and you represent us very well. And I can only imagine how many times uh, the team wants to react a certain way in different circumstances and don't because they know that they are, in fact, representing the Jewish people, and I think that's pretty amazing. So thank you, Elliot. Thank you. Thank you for all the support throughout the years. A pleasure. Elliot Steinmetz, coach of the Yeshiva University men's basketball team. Finally, my dream came true. A full-length, face-to-face conversation uh, with somebody who leads one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the the best outfits in the Jewish community, and that's Yeshiva University men's basketball. More coming up. You're listening to a Thursday morning edition of JM in the AM.
J.M. in the A.M. That's Eitan Freilich. Before that, Miami. It's Thursday here at J.M. the A.M. My thanks to Elliot Steinmetz, coach of the Yeshiva University men's basketball team. They are a, um, they're quite a group. They're quite a group, and they represent us very well. And I'm glad I had this opportunity to uh, pay tribute to them, so to speak, with this conversation. 
And um, once they get restarted again, October, November, we'll certainly let everybody know and uh, get everybody revved up for another great year. JM and the AM on this Thursday. A full lineup, of course, today here at the uh, Nahum Siegel Network. Charlie Harari next with Unlocking Greatness. Spin class with Michael Fragan at 9.30. Jew in the City Speaks. Allison at 10 o'clock. 10.30 this morning, Miriam L. Wallach with That's Life. Uh, with Miriam this week, David Canterfogel and Leslie Gang, co-founders of Hindi's Libraries. Here how they are honoring the memory of uh, Dr. Hindi Krinsky, David's wife, by donating books to organizations that partner with children and families in need across the country. Information at hindyslibraries.com, hindyslibraries.com, and of course on Facebook as well. We'll do a live lunch starting at 11 a.m. Eastern time here in our studio. 7 p.m. in Israel, 12 noon here, the uh, funeral of uh, Zachary Baumel. We discussed that situation earlier. Um, that's happening at 7 p.m. Israel time on Har, on Har Herzl. Uh, we lost a great friend yesterday. I... Um, did a what I think was a uh, an appropriate early morning tribute to the memory of uh, Chaz and Sherwood Goffin, Chaz, as we knew him, the um, cantor at Lincoln Square Synagogue from 1965 till just a couple of years ago. Somebody who is uh, synonymous with the Soviet jury movement. I said earlier when you. Uh, when you were standing on the streets of uh, Manhattan or Riverdale or wherever it was the protest was going on against the Soviet mission, it was likely that the music was being led either by Shlomo Kalbach or Sherwood Goffin. And um, in addition to that, Chaz was mine and many teenagers, Nusach teachers, Somebody who insisted that if someone gets up to represent the Jewish people in prayer, they get up there properly and with the proper manner of a directing the tefillah. And that's something that he cared about a tremendous amount and gave us all that same attitude through the lessons that he taught us over all these years. So Chaz, Chaz and Sherwood Goffin, his funeral 1030 this morning at the uh, at Lincoln Square Synagogue in Manhattan. And the boy will he be missed. And, of course, our condolences to the entire family. JM in the AM at six minutes before 9 o'clock. We did have good news yesterday, Baruch Hashem. Many of you remember uh, Jamie Turkel, who was um, such an important uh, piece to the Nachum Single Network growth over the last few years and was with us during a time that we undertook the Paris and Venice projects and many other things. Uh, Jamie and Yoey Turkel, brand-new baby boy yesterday. Mazal tov. Jamie and Yoey Turkel. Brand new baby boy that's there, Bukhar. We say Mazal Tov. And, um, and to, the, uh, to the Roar and Turkel families, Mazal Tov from all of us here at JM&M. A reminder of Ayudin and Rebetzin Yudin are being uh, honored this coming Sunday. Go to yudintribute.org if you haven't yet donated. yudintribute.org for uh, the uh, tribute dinner for Rabbi Mrs. Yudin. Again, that's yudintribute.org. More coming up. It is a Thursday morning edition of JM in the AM.
Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com, on the NachumSingle Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a, a Thursday morning edition of JMNM. Tomorrow we're back, weekly update and more, of course. Make sure to be tuned in. We've asked Rabbi Riskin to join us tomorrow morning to speak about Cantor Sherwood Goffin. We'll see if that conversation materializes. I pray that it does. And um, and that'll do it for a Thursday. Live lunch coming up at 11 o'clock. Plenty between now and then, including Charlie Harari, Michael Fragan, Allison Josephs, and uh, That's Life with Miriam Al Wallach with her um, special guests from Hindi's Libraries. It's all coming up here if you keep it on the Nahum Siegel Network. Have a fabulous Thursday. Till tomorrow, Nahum Siegel reminding you, remember to pass, live the present, and trust the future.